Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Okay, please welcome Buck Henry. First thing I want to ask is, what it, was it like for you to see this again? What was this? Um, it like? was really interesting because I haven't seen it in fifteen or twenty years. <clears throat> I've seen pieces of it from time to time mm-hmm. on television and at screenings where the prints were so bad you could barely see the characters. So it was remarkable to see a print this good. It's you know it's dimmed down a little, mm-hmm. but it's in pretty good shape. Um, there were a lot of things I forgot about it. Mm-hmm. A few things I wish I'd forgotten. <laughs> uh, but um, by and large, uh, it was interesting to see it, and I think it's still pretty good. Are there, are there people who had not seen it before? Okay. A few people had never seen it. That one group. <laughs> <laughs> that one strange group. <laughs> Foreigners. <laughs> um, was when it came out the most profitable uh, money-making movie that had ever been released. It was really a phenomenon at the time. Could you talk a little bit about what, kind of when you realized that was going to happen? There are two sides (coughs) to this story. (laughs) One is uh, what one expects from early reactions. Usually after a film is finished, the, uh, the filmmaker, the director, has a screening for his friends, his or her friends, um, the Friends screening, as we like to think of it, <laughs> usually with a shudder. Um, you know, it's traditional to, to let your pals see it before anybody else. In this case, because it was Mike's friends, each of them was more famous than anyone you know. Uh, and so about oh, 100, 150 people were assembled at Paramount to see this, to have people see it for the first time. And um, most of them came out, well, not most of them. A lot of them came out saying basically the same thing. Oh, Mike, it's a wonderful film. It's really, it's so beautifully made. It's so uh, marvelously shot. Uh, it, it's really interesting. It's got such clever things. It's a shame about the boy, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's interesting. He's got that interesting, but he's also got that big. You know, there must be something he can do about that if he plans to have a career in films. Um, <laughs> So the, the Friends screening is one uh, to avoid um, because it's very misleading and, and very confusing. I, I went away immediately after that. I went to Europe to, to work on another picture. And when I came back, the graduate had been open for about, uh, oh, I don't know, a month or two. And um, I had heard it was a success, but I went to a theater to see it on 57th Street. Uh, I was amazed, even a little appalled, at the fact that not only was the theater filled with people, but it was filled with people who already had seen it and knew the lines. So that uh, I was sitting, I think, on the steps because it was an overflow crowd and um, all the key lines, the gag lines, were being spoken about 10 seconds before they came up. So it was bizarre to sit there and hear five or six hundred people saying plastics. All at once. (laughs) Can you wait for a moment? Can you just wait and hear it? Uh, I realized what a success it was because people had been seeing it for a number of times. 
which was before the tradition of kids seeing hit films over and over again really had started. Mm -hmm. Larry Terman bought the novel um, in the mid-60s and brought it to Mike. He might even have had a script done of it first, but I, I, I don't remember. He brought it to Nichols, and then with that as a package, um, he took it to uh, the studios, all five of which turned it down, even with Nichols, who had just done Virginia Woolf, which was quite a big hit. They just didn't see it. Uh, nobody wanted to finance it until Joe Levine I assume you know who Joe Levine is, but if you don't, I'll tell you. Um, Joe Levine is this great character who uh, owned an outfit called Embassy Films, and he'd made his fortune by, by double booking films in his theater in Boston um, that he thought had related themes. Mostly their themes were like he would show two Hercules films. <laughs> hard to believe people would see two Hercules films in one sitting. It's hard to believe they see one Hercules film in a sitting. But in this case, they packed his theater for a year seeing these dopey movies, and he made a fortune, and he decided to get into real movies. So he financed this and, and made another fortune. Uh, out of which, and then he then he made a series of other films were, which were not quite so successful. But without Joe, they wouldn't have been The Graduate. Um, then when it was cast, even uh, even then, uh, people were reluctant to consider the fact that it might be a hit because it had who, who did star? It starred Anne Bancroft, who was a um, a, a very well thought of uh, actress and had done some extraordinary work both on the stage and in films, but she wasn't a money actress. And this kid with a big nose. <laughs> and a lot of unknown people. Uh, so it was, And it was shot in... Mike wanted a, it insisted on Panavision, which he loved. He just liked framing in Panavision. And that was considered a, a kind of an iffy proposition, because Panavision was good for westerns, for th films in which people rode great distances from right to left and left to right. But... <laughs> It was a big screen, and you had to fill it with something. And it was not the practice of most directors to fill wide screens with people doing comedy or, uh, or romance. So all these factors m gave it a kind of look that uh, audiences were unused to, but obviously liked. I was just wondering, both you and um, Mike Nichols had a, a background in um, improvisational comedy and in writing for television comedy. And I'm wondering just what you learned in terms of scene construction, in terms of pacing and timing of scenes from, from television and from, that, and from those improv experiences. I don't know that we learned anything from television. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever learned anything from television. Uh, yeah, I had done a lot of work in television. I, Mike hadn't really done much except doing stuff with Elaine that, that he did on TV. Um, like but improvisational, certainly. Uh, I mean, there are there are all sorts of gags and tags to scenes in there that come out of improvisational scenes. Uh, Mike even, you know, borrowed a couple of things he and Elaine had done. And blowing out the smoke after the kiss is something he and Elaine had done in a sketch uh, years ago, years before. It's interesting to me to see how long some of the scenes take. Uh, in, in some cases a little too long for me now but certainly by today's standards where films have to have to uh, crank up the volume every few minutes to keep the audience 
satisfied. It's interesting to see that this film takes its time. Um, it, uh, characters are allowed to sit there and stand there and walk there and, and, uh, and so that you can assess their mood and begin to feel the way the character feels. Since the theme from the beginning was what is it like to live underwater? Um, what's the feeling like? What's the alienated feeling that, if not all of us, a large percentage of us feel when we're 18, 19, 20 years old and have to talk to adults who live in a different world that we don't understand and really don't want to, and, uh, and that everything comes through a kind of barrier. So the, you know, the little guy in the fish tank is a sort of theme for the way the hero and the way ostensibly we feel, that feeling of being isolated from, from, social, from social behavior that's accepted. And also then that the gives the excuse for the peculiar dialogue that's 70 or 80% of the time just a little off what people really say. It's, it's, um, it's not deconstructed so much as, as uh, I don't know what the word, it, it's like, it's almost like it's translated. Obviously, I improvise when I'm writing. Everybody does. Every writer does. Uh, you improvise and, and hope uh, that uh, you're getting to uh, the punchline at some distant point. Uh, Mike uh, Nichols rehearses a lot, and this was this was very rehearsed. There are only two or things, three things in the whole film that weren't written down or pre-set in some way. Uh, and they stay in the film partly because they're great and partly because, because Nichols shoots in long masters and doesn't like to cut it up except where he's planned to cut it up. It's a drag to have to go and shoot a whole master again because somebody's done a little blip that you didn't figure for. Like Dustin when he says his name, when, uh, when Murray Hamilton can't quite come up with his name in the scene in the Lanai when he's talking to Ben and he says and I just told him and Dustin waited about four seconds of Ben uh, which was you know just a moment that that was very funny and he thought of at that moment and it stayed in uh, probably partly because that was the best take of that master when did um, you come into the project this was based on a novel by Charles Webb it had um, three different writers and I know you're credited as working with Calder Willingham, but you, uh, in fact, uh, came in on the third, I mean, you were the third writer hired? Um, the Writers Guild determines all credits. Uh, if you've done a previous script and you think you deserve credit, you request it or you sue for it. Um, <laughs> Willingham, whom I never met, uh, and William Hanley, well-known playwright, writer, and possibly somebody else had written scripts before I got there. Um, I actually wasn't aware that they'd written scripts until I got through. Um, and then Willingham sued for credit. The Guild determines credits based on three things, plot, characters, and dialogue. If two people are adapting screenplays from the same book, the odds are they're going to use the same characters and the same plot. <laughs> Um, the secret of avoiding having to share credit with someone who had nothing to do with the actual script you write, of course, is to change all the characters' names, which is a, a kind of petty. 
um, and or change the plot so fundamentally that it doesn't relate in any way to previous scripts, which is hard to do. Um, and, and of course, we both used chunks of dialogue from the book, so Willingham easily got credit, which I'm perfectly willing to admit pissed me off. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure he came to think that he'd written the script or part of it. Um, he was a very, very good novelist. Um, but actually, he had a peculiar reputation of suing for credit on several films and winning. Uh, and a lot of writers have made a lot of money doing that, is, is sort of churning out first scripts, having them thrown away if they're adaptations, and then, and then suing for credit and getting it. And then, then there's participation in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the monies that come in from television and ancillary rights. So it's a good deal financially to have your name on as many films as possible, whether you've actually written them or not. Um, so that's the answer to that. And what was your relationship um, with Mike Nichols? For example, you talked about the theme, the underwater theme, which you see in the visuals in the film, you see coming in in a lot of ways. Is this something that you and Mike discussed before you actually started writing a draft? Or, or You know, I don't remember. Yeah. I we, at one time or another, we discussed everything and worked the final draft. Uh, I think there were about three drafts. The final draft, we, we went over together point by point and worked very hard on certain aspects of it, like the montage sequence where simultaneously Dustin and Anne are having their affair and he's home lying around. Uh, and it's, a, it's an interesting piece of filmmaking because it's really very hard to do because you can't just say, well, he goes in this room and then he's in another room. You have to figure out, of course, visually how he gets into that other room. You know, when you first look at, the first shot of it is Dustin leaves the pool and walks inside and you have every right to think, why is he putting on a white shirt when he's all wet? Well, it's so he can appear in a white shirt in the next scene in the hotel. Um, and then each one has to tie into the next. It, we actually talked about it, for, it seemed like three weeks. We fiddled around with how the shots would go one from another. And then finally when it was put together, it didn't work. And Sam Osteen, the editor, came in and made a cut and saved the whole thing. So you never know quite who's responsible for the final grammar of the sequence. You talked about Dustin Hoffman's casting. And um, it's also true with To Die For with Nicole Kidman, where you find an an actor who just seems so perfect in that role that you, then you can't imagine anybody else ever doing it. And now, but if you go back and read the novel, The Graduate, I mean, something else completely different than Dustin Hoffman was. In, in totally, and so we had a he, we had a totally different idea of it. We used to call them the the characters, and and uh, the actors that we had contemplated. We used to call them surfboards. They were real. You know what we thought of was. Southern California people, as, as you know, um, good Hasidic Jews can move from New York to Southern California and in one generation their children are tall and blonde. <laughs> no one knows why. It's some kind of genetic deformation for out of smog and, and dim-witted conversation. Uh, so, and, and it's quite true that you can go, and you, and you can see miles and miles of them on any beach. And that's what we thought everyone would look like. So did, our did ideal you... cast was 
as the father and mother, Ronald Reagan and Doris Day, <laughs> and then maybe Redford and Candy Bergen as Elaine and and um, Benjamin. Um, uh, actually, there were tests made, and Redford and Candy both made a test. About six different couples tested. Some of them surfboards, some of them not. But when it came right down to it, the surfboards were never as interesting as what we consider to be the real actors. And so that idea was sacrificed in the name of getting better actors. And Dustin, Dustin tested with, uh, Dustin tested with uh, Catherine, and the test he did made everybody else seem really uninteresting. And they were all good actors. I mean, Redford was one, Tony Bill was one, Chuck, Charles Grodin, who gave perhaps the best and funniest reading for the part of any reading I've ever heard an actor give for anything, uh, tested. But he too was wiped out. I know that in his book, Chuck thinks he was offered the role and turned it down. <laughs> Almost every actor thinks they were offered the role and turned it down 10, 15 years later. But it isn't true. He may have refused to sign the, con the pre-test contract, which stipulated a salary should he be chosen, because they were really cheap. I mean, they didn't pay a lot of money. But he was not offered the role, and nobody would have, after, would have been after Dustin, because it was just clear that he was more interesting, more, uh, he was more interesting, he was unique, and his weird look only added to it. So what the compromise we made in our heads, we rationalized that he was a genetic throwback. <laughs> that the, to the surfboards had, uh, you know, had, had uh, somehow um, a grandfather who was from someplace else. And Dustin looked like him. Um, so that's how we got to Dustin. Um, and uh, I don't think the cheap was a factor. Um, and, every, and a lot of people said, well, you can't. He's too short, he's too funny looking, his voice is too weird. All of which, of course, was, was perfect. <coughs> and was it a role that he very aggressively went after? Mm, or? I don't think so. I, um, I think I was the only one who had actually seen Dustin perform and knew how really interesting he was. He'd been in a play at the American Place Theater, at the old American Place Theater uh, in New York. Of a play called Harry Noon and Night uh, by Ronald Ribman. A really interesting play in which Dustin played the part of a, a crippled transsexual German. <laughs> and if you would come up upon him without any preamble, I knew who he was because we vaguely worked in the theater together a couple years before that, but if you didn't know who he was, you would be convinced that he was crippled, German, and a transsexual, transvestite. So I knew that he could become a lot of things that he wasn't. I, I wasn't convinced that he could become this sort of surfboard until I saw the test. Uh, Dustin was extremely careful, very well behaved, I think fairly nervous about this as a big break opportunity, as who wouldn't be? and uh, understood immediately. I mean, he, he does a lot of nickels in the, in the film. The hmm is a nickels habit, uh, which he, he, he didn't appropriate so much. I think Mike gave it to him. And 
a lot of the sort of disaffected readings are the way Nichols talks sometimes. Maybe in present day world, he does it a few too many times. But it's not like anything else. It doesn't it doesn't copy any other role. So it's uh, it's interesting. And he was uh, he was good. He was filled with ideas, and he was great fun to work with. To talk about the process of adapting the book, the the novel that was a source is a very um, spare book. It's a lot of dialogue and very little description and. Um, it doesn't quite have the tone that you achieved in the film. I'm just wondering, how did you, how did the film get, you know, get the flavor that it has, and how did you work from the novel on, on doing the screenplay? You know, I haven't read the book since yeah. since I worked on it, so mm-hmm. I I don't know. I it it has. I think it's true to the tone of the book as I remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is a has a remarkable sound to it, and Charles Webb, who wrote it, himself has a remarkable sound and has had a strange, eventful life. Uh, It actually, I think Webb writes that dialogue thinking, that kind of dialogue thinking it is really the way people talk. Mm -hmm. Um, So my job was to find a way to take it and extend it, and, you know, add characters and add scenes that, that that play the theme out. Um, We actually started, this may be of interest, or it may be of no interest at all, you'll be the judge. Uh, (laughs) We started with a sequence that we thought would actually be a thematic statement. We started with the idea that we were going to shoot a huge college graduation. The graduate, right? Uh, And there would be this big graduation ceremony in an amphitheater somewhere I don't know where we were going to find this place, and there would be thousands of people waiting to hear the valedictorian speech, and Dustin would be would be giving that speech in his cap and gown, and he would be standing there on the lectern with his speech. We extrapolated this next bit from Robert Frost's uh, poem at the Kennedy inauguration, when the wind blew Frost's pages away, which was a remarkable moment on television. Um, and while he was talking, the wind would begin to blow the words away through the microphone. You wouldn't hear them until, and he didn't know what he was saying. He couldn't find the words. He couldn't find what to say about that moment, that impressive moment. And then he would wake up from this dream in the airplane. Well, we saved a million dollars by not shooting that sequence. <laughs> uh, and... Um, and of course, we didn't need it because it's 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 apparent what's happening uh, from the beginning. I think all those voices coming in, you know, the, those hideous airplane voices and the ghastly terminal voices and all that stuff. Uh, what was I talking about? Um, just oh, where the tone of it? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it seemed. It seemed. Terman and Nichols and then I all responded to the book the same way, that it made a direct impression on what we thought people like us felt like around graduation time. Um, Alienation, confusion about goals, um, and what the uh, what the uh, poets call anomie, 
that sort of distracted feeling that you have now gone through the first third, you've taken the first important step of your life and everything after is seems to be going to be an anticlimax. Uh, we were taken to task by a couple of critics later on for not dealing with the important topics of Vietnam, which of course has simply nothing to do with it, uh, and other lesser important things like driving the wrong way across the Golden Gate Bridge, <laughs> which is really stupid. Um, but, uh, but also it's specific, it is very Southern California. I mean, it's lifestyle and it's concerns and it's, um, you know, everything about the film would, would, of course, would be and was thoroughly disliked by anyone with, uh, with uh, a tendency toward Marxism. <laughs> um, actually, Haskell Wexler, who shot uh, Virginia Woolf, refused to shoot this one because he read the script and said mm. something like, you know, I, I can't attend to this kind of bourgeois bullshit. Um, and I saw his point. I mean, you know, I know, I know where he was coming from. Uh, but then he went on to shoot the Thomas Crown Affair. So I felt, <laughs> I don't know, Haskell, I, I, I know what you mean, but did they offer you more money? At the same time, it did reach. I mean, it did reach a counterculture movement. It reached an incredible youth audience. Like yeah, it yeah. Its main audience was a was a youth audience. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think it speaks to concerns about the way people feel. It also has what every writer looks for, what every filmmaker looks for. It has a bedrock story. Uh, you know, boy has affair with woman, falls in love with daughter. Bottom line. That's it. Hard to beat. Um, no writer, no matter how jaded, could fail to construct some sort of story out of that. So it's always great to have that at your shoulder. The uh, little bit that we saw from the player about the sequel, I was wondering how realistic that was. I mean, were, because of the success of The Graduate, were there offers? Um, Down through the years, both professionals and total strangers on the street have... Uh, have insisted that a sequel be made. Um, so, well, I'll tell you the story of this. Uh, and they won't stop either. And they won't stop till we're all dead. Um, Altman called and said, will you come over, uh, making a movie, come over with some other writers and pitch a story. And I said, okay. He says, well, what are you going to pitch? I said, I'm not going to tell you. I'll, uh, you know, tell you when I get there. And so th this, this, the shot at the beginning of the player took a day to rehearse and a day to shoot. An afternoon to rehearse and an afternoon to shoot. And um, I, I thought, well, I'm not going to tell them until the first take. Like, I had this dopey idea that I would get what we used to call the band laugh in television. Um, I, this is a long parenthesis. When we used, worked on the Steve Allen show, we would do all the joke, the punchlines in double talk when we rehearsed so that the band would actually laugh out loud when we did it on air, because they'd never heard it before. So we could depend on these 30 <laughs> depraved musicians <laughs> to laugh at the joke and lead the audience. So, you know, it was, who was that woman I saw you? Well, that was a woman that was a Falder on the Corundon. And we do, we do a whole <laughs> rehearsal like that. 
which was hell for actors who really like to hear themselves rehearsing, but it worked for the band. So I thought I was going to get this nice hot laugh of the graduate pitch, um, forgetting, of course, that we'd be doing takes all day long, and it wouldn't matter around take two or three. So um, I gave him the, the, the graduate thing, and he said, yeah, that makes sense. We changed it a little for each take. I think the one he finally took was take eight, because there was so much going on, obviously. Um, the, all the takes were very different. Um, and then he had a big opening. Uh, Waltman had a big showing of it at the Ziegfeld Theater a year later, whenever it was finished. And everybody laughed at the gag, because they were all studio people and insiders, and thought, yeah, it's really funny, blah, blah, blah. The film is over. I walk into the lobby, and a guy comes up to me. He says, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm at Universal. That was a very, very funny listen just between you and me, don't you think there's a shot that we could take at a sequel to The Graduate? (laughs) So, um, the myth dies hard, and they'll they'll be pursuing a sequel forever. Uh, Even Dustin had an idea for a sequel a few years ago. Uh, So you never know. Offer me enough money? No. (laughs) Um, The... To Die For um, is seemed to me one of the few recent movies that that really offers a satirical look at the at the culture around. It seems to feel the same in, in its kind of way. It feels the same sort of role the Graduate did at the time, and and it makes you realize how few movies there are like that now in current Hollywood. Um, movies directed at that that sort of youth audience. Um, just wondering what your thoughts are in the time between The Graduate and To Die For. Um, of those sort of satirical films being made, how hard it is to get those made, how the audience has changed, the perceived audience has changed. Um, Yeah, well, uh, films cost much more money. Uh, It's much harder for them to get their money back. Uh, So the, the chances that are taken are far fewer, except, of course, in independent films, where they're cheaper and where there are people... uh, with bigger hearts and or less experience to take uh, shots at stories, at actors, at directors who, uh, who haven't got, you know, who aren't going to make huge, um, huge expensive films that, that have uh, chancy aspects to them. I don't know what, there is no solution to it. And I don't see it as getting any better, except that there are a lot of good independent films made. Satire has never been a, a word that anybody in a studio wants to hear. You know, the door is shut real fast, and you can hear slamming all the way down the hall if somebody says, he's coming in with a satire. Uh, um, but then I'm not quite sure about the categorization of films anyway. I, you know, I was always surprised because I never thought of The Graduate, that this may seem really dopey, but I never thought of The Graduate necessarily as a comedy. I thought of it as a love story that had comedy things about it. I mean, is the difference between The Graduate, which is a very powerful love story and a complicated one, and say a movie like Forgive Me, Love Story, is the only the difference is the characters in Love Story don't have any sense of humor at all. Uh, I don't really know. I don't know I don't know why when, at award time, um, 
films like The Graduate or To Die For are talked about as comedies. I don't see To Die For as a comedy. I see it as a melodrama which, with a kind of sardonic eye. But who am I to judge? <laughs> um, it's hard to make that tone viable because you have to have the you have to be very, very specific with the actors. You have to have a director who understands it. And ideally, you have to have a studio that knows how to market it. And it's much harder for a studio in their marketing division to advertise and promote a film whose tone cannot be described in terms that are directly understandable by a farm couple in Iowa. Um, nothing wrong with a farm couple in Iowa, but, but they have to target the lowest common denominator and work their way up. And it has killed a lot of good ideas. Uh, how do, we'll see To Die For Later, and we'll, we'll, um, I don't want to talk too much about it now, but since you mentioned uh, this idea of a complex tone, I mean, that's a movie that has a very complex tone, because in, um, it, you could, on one hand, say that it's a, a satire and that um, everybody's interested in the media and, and how media is taken over, but there's a, a, a real sympathy for characters you might not find that you'd normally find that sympathetic. I think so, and it's interesting that you said that. A lot of other people don't. I mean, a lot of people, I don't know a lot, but a number of people have thought that the film is condescending to some of the characters. Or, I mean, the cliche reaction to anything that has a dark side to its leading characters is that it's, it's just dark and ugly. Um, but, yeah, if you don't, I don't think you can do a good film about people some something in them, if you don't respond to something in them, if you don't like them in some way, obviously the great writers have loved their villains. Uh, you know, if, if, uh, if, if Shakespeare hadn't loved Iago, then he wouldn't have been such an interesting character and a great one. Um, and in, in a lot of cases, the villains, of course, are infinitely more interesting than the, uh, than the nice folks. Um, so, so yeah, I, I have to like the, per, the people. I have to be interested in the people as I'm writing them. I think all writers do. Uh, and the more, the darker they are and the more crooked they are and the more weird they are, the more I tend to like them. But that's a flaw in my character. <laughs> Not so much having to do with writing itself. Um, we talked about... What I'm calling satires is not being made. Another kind of comedy that seems to not be not being made these days um, is the the kind of classically constructed sort of um, farce like What's Up Doc, which is not pretending at all to be social satire, um, you know, but has well, has slapstick gags, but also has a sense of construction um, of, of from the classic Hollywood period. And somebody at the popular comedies today seem to be much broader. Yeah. Well, farce may be the hardest kind of comedy of everything to write because it's all strategy. It's all about how you get everybody from those places into those places and why you do it and when. And, and you know, timing, of course, is everything. So it falls really flat when it's not done well. And there have been very few farces made, in, uh, very few American farces made since the 30s. Um, 
in a sense, I mean, What's Up Doc makes me totally happy in a way that the other films I've written don't because Bogdanovich was so good at doing that tone. Uh, I mean, I, I, have no, I have no qualms about any sequence in it. They all seem to me to, to work on their own level. It's a very cartoony, superficial level, but it's also very complicated technically and interesting to see, you know, it's interesting to see it work out. Um, it's great fun, it's very hard to do, but it's great fun to do. And when it works, it's kind of a revelation. But I, yeah, I, I, I really like the film. You, and you said that you wrote that very quickly. Read I wrote it very quickly because Bogdanovich, what happened was there was a script that he and, and Benton and Newman had read, had read. <laughs> had wrote uh, and I don't think they'd finished it and, and Peter didn't much like it and he said is there something you can do with this and he gave it to me and I said yeah and he said but I have to start shooting in like five weeks and I said well maybe so their, their script hinged on a, a thousands of movie jokes. Now, I don't like to do movie jokes in movies. I've done a few, but I'm, I'm generally against them. Um, so I said, can I take all the movie jokes out? And he said, well, you can try. So I took all of them out. He put one back, which was Barbara singing, which was the little um, Casablanca bit with Barbara singing Time Goes By to, to Ryan. And uh, and then as I got into it, I said, what I'd like to do is add another suitcase. There were three suitcases, the story of three suitcases, where they go and why. And I, I said, it needs a fourth. I was improvising. I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> he said, okay, put a fourth in. So I put a fourth in, and then I went berserk for three weeks. I did nothing but figure out where these suitcases were going, and it made me crazy. I used to call him in the middle of the night and say, I'm, I've lost a suitcase. I don't think I can ever find it again. Is there any way you can make another film while, while we're waiting? <laughs> and then finally, uh, I did it. And as a coda to, what I, to this and to what I said a moment ago, of course, I lied. I ended the film with a movie joke that I bitterly regret um, by a, a little quotation from Love Story that uh, was a huge laugh in that year. Um, but this year, I wish it had another ending. <laughs> um, I, I want to open up to uh, questions from the audience. Uh, one kind of obvious question I forgot to ask you was the um, one word, famous word in The Graduate. Which is now in, uh, what do you call it? It's now in the compendium of quotes, Bartlett's. How did that line? Because that line um, is not in the book. It's one thing that's not in the book. Um, no, I just thought. I, I was improvising that dialogue, and plastics seemed to be... Actually, it's funny because a couple months after the plastic scene was written, after the first draft was written, or the second or the third, I said to Mike, Let's, plastics, does it seem a little old-fashioned to you? <laughs> and um, he said, uh, well, I don't know, what do you think? I said, well, you know, I mean, computers are coming in. I mean, they're germanium tubes, or whatever the hell was going on in that year. I said, maybe there's something else. And I, I thought, I, and I couldn't find a, anything else for it. Um, and it, it had come into my head, that idea of plastic standing for 
a generation's concerns came because uh, I had a professor in college who who used to fulminate about the plastic uh, the plastic world we live in, and um, and so that gave me the idea for it, and. And, and it worked immediately, I mean, beyond my wildest dreams. I, it never occurred to me that it would, it would be quoted and that people would uh, applaud it. Um, and then a, a year or so after the film was made, the best kind of compliment was given it. The Peace Corps did a commercial in which they recreated the party scene from the moment Dustin comes down the stairs to the moment he goes, no, to the moment the dialogue is finished about plastics, and the guy says, plastics, they're plastics, think, enough said, think about it. And it froze, with actors looking exactly like the people in the movie, and it said, why not try the Peace Corps? It said, great, great commercial. Okay, are there any questions from the audience? And we could bring up the house lights a bit. Um, okay, we'll start right back there. Okay. Um, you were talking about um, when you wrote the script with Nichols, the final draft, I believe. Did you, were you also an observer on set, or were you busy doing something else at the time? I was on the set. I've been on the set in every film except What's Up, Doc. I'm always there to do, I don't know, just hang around. It keeps me from having to work on something else. <laughs> and um, Because now and then there are actual rewrites. And if I don't do them, someone will. And what did you, what did you learn? From, what did you learn from the process? Was that wasn't that wasn't your first movie that you were on set, or was that was the first movie that you? Were? No, I'd been on, I'd been on sets before, and I, it's not that different from being on television sets. I mean, I'd done a lot of film in TV work, so I'd been on a lot of sets. Uh, I don't know what I learned. I never do know what I've learned on a set. Um, I just sort of like the environment. It's funny because I hate other people's sets. I won't go near them if I can help it. But uh, but it's very restful being on the set. And it also, if you're on the set as a writer, you then don't get the rude shock when the film comes out of seeing something completely unsuspected. You sort of know what's there. But I tend to, I mean, usually, almost every film I've written is for a director who's a friend of mine. So we do things along the way. You know, I've always been involved in casting and sometimes, you know, suggesting a reshoot or a shot or something. Yeah, the reason why I was asking because I remember interviews and one of the things you were talking about was not only that, but you were also, from being on set, you were observing the actors, and especially Catherine Ross. What are you trying to say? <laughs> well, a lot of people had great things to say about her, and you yourself have such an admiration for her then, and then it continued. I was just curious to know, by seeing the film today, what did you see about Catherine Ross? Um, well, she's... St sit down. <laughs> she's, still, she's still the most beautiful girl of her generation. I mean, she is the schoolboy's dream. Uh, and uh, it's very interesting because Mike wasn't sure he could get certain things out of her. She, she was, I think she was nervous about this, this show. And 
They were trying, and, and also it's hard to do some of this slightly stilted dialogue. It's not easy to do uh, a lot of it. And he was he was worried about. He, he used a lot of his the patented Nichols tricks, like in the sequence in the bedroom up in Berkeley where she slams into the room and uh, accuses him of various things. He keeps her moving back and forth across the room. It looks like an interesting visual idea. Basically, he did it for her. He did it because he wanted to keep her energy up and to keep our eye going with her and maybe not paying that close attention to the quality of the dialogue. Uh, what, I, what interests me, interested me today is how well she does it. I mean, there, there's no problem. She, she knew what she was about. She plays both the shock and the ingenuousness at a perfect level. Um, I think she's really good. And maybe I didn't think she was that good 20 years ago, but I do now. I think she, you know, I can't imagine anybody else doing it. Okay, over here. Mm -hmm. um, the movie is a breakthrough in, term, in terms of its themes, but also in terms of the music. It was the first movie that had a, a rock pop and music soundtrack. And I was wondering if you could shed some light on um, Mike's decision to use Simon Garfunkel in the movie. Nichols knew that he wanted my reaction. Studios. Studios reaction. I don't know what the studio's reaction was, so I can't answer that. But Nichols knew he wanted to use uh, uh, Paul's music before we started, before I started. Um, he'd been listening to that particular record that had "Sounds of Silence" on it, and he was crazy about it. And he thought that it had the perfect tone for the story. Um, and I, my response to it was, I really like Sounds of Silence. I, I wasn't then, and I'm still not now, quite as enthusiastic about one or two of the other songs. And I, but I love Sounds of Silence, and I think it's, it's a perfect uh, metaphor. Um, so he laid it in on the working track. Uh, he laid it in as a, as a scratch track on the, when we were working on the film, uh, on the first cuts. And so Paul, and our, Paul went off to write other music. The, those were just temps to, to give it a kind of sound. And then Paul was going to write a whole new score. And he wrote some songs, and nothing could ever replace Sounds of Silence. Um, and I think the, so. I think the only new music he wrote for it was obviously was Mrs. Robinson. Uh, now there are certain things that bother me in some places in the film about it. Why Dustin should be whistling Mrs. Robinson is utterly beyond me. <laughs> I don't think he is actually whistling the tune. I think he's, you know, whistling soundlessly. And then Mike put in the whistle of Mrs. Robinson over it, but I, I've never understood. I can't, I can't remember what his answer was when I asked him about it. It seems really weird. Um, the other thing that I don't like is the break in the, in the montage where Sounds of Silence turns into what other, what, uh, yeah, which is a, a song that should never follow, to me, should never follow Sounds of Silence. It's just much too overwhelming a, a song in its, in its tone and its sounds for this sort of, I think, weedy little song to follow it. 
And I don't like it that it breaks anyway, because the montage should have one piece of music over it that begins and ends it. But what do I know? Um, so, so nothing could ever replace the music that Paul had already written in Mike's mind, and, and that's how all that stuff stayed in, in the film. Um, and then, of course, they fed each other. The film sold millions of records, and then the records in turn sold the film at infinitum. Okay, right down in front here. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering a couple questions. One, if you could just describe your process of writing, whether you work on characters first or the yeah, whatever, how how you how you work on a, on a particular project. And second question, if I brought the both the graduate to you now, any ideas of how you would you would do it today as opposed to when you did it then? Um. I have no idea what I would do if you brought the graduate to me now. I, 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 I don't know. It's too speculative. Um, as far as my work process is concerned, I put it off as long as I can, <laughs> uh, filling in the hours I should be working with every kind of event known to man up to and including this very one we're indulging <laughs> ourselves in today. To see, this event allowed me to kill probably three days. I had to go from California to New York. Uh, I had to come out here, and after this, I'm going to have to rest up for a day. So <laughs> then I might turn the machine on and think about working. I have no good process at all. Uh, I, I'm driven to it ultimately by anxiety and fear um, and shame. Um, so, so, but the process in terms of actual words are, I'm not sure I can answer this. I improvise my way into it. I don't start, I have to know three things. I have to know what the beginning is, I have to know what the end is, and I have to know some big piece in the middle that I want to get to, that I really want to write, so that I can be um, motivated after the opening to get there and then the last piece I have to know about, so I have an end in sight, so there's some light at the end of the tunnel, no matter how many miles or months away. Often, of course, one's idea changes about the beginning uh, and that wonderful piece in the middle and the end. But not, off, not that often for me. I usually, if I know the beginning, I think I've always had the beginning and end that I started with. Um, then, then uh, I try and bust it into pieces. Uh, you know, idea, ideally, there should be no scene that one writes that doesn't connect in some way to what goes before it. This is, of course, <clears throat> in, in practical terms, not always true, because yet, you know, I end up with uh, very, very long first drafts because I tend to write a lot of dialogue because dialogue is the easiest thing for me. Story is the hardest. Um, not plot so much as story. And, and, uh, and sometimes it gets so complicated that uh, I, have to go sort of, I have to sort of go back to the beginning and, and throw out. I, there was an interview some years ago with Harold Pinter in which uh, 
he, he made an interesting uh, statement about he was writing a play. He said he was writing a play, and he was going along with these two characters that were the main part of the play, and suddenly, to his surprise, a window opened up, and a guy climbed through, and started talking to them. And for three or four days, Pinter says, these three characters talked about junk that he was, had no interest in whatever until he could convince the guy to go back out the window. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. But basically, it's what happens, is that you, is that people come in the windows, and you tend to fall in love with the people who come in the windows, because they're so interesting, and they have absolutely nothing to do with the story at all. Uh, and where you're compelled to try and boil down a few ideas into roughly 120 pages and, uh, and convince a studio that uh, a story can be built out of those pages that will hold an audience for 90 to 120 minutes. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, they are problems in strategy. They don't have as much to do with, you know, it's, novelists are so lucky. Somebody, you know, walks over and tells a story, and the story can go on for 240 pages. And then the other story can start again, and you can't do it in a film. Uh, I don't know whether that answered your question. Were there any, other, were there any endings, different endings for the graduate? Never. No, it was always... Um, it always ended at the church and on the bus, and then the sort of ambiguous emotional ending was something that just happened. That is to say, Mike didn't tell them what he wanted them to do, Dustin and, and Catherine. Just sit down there, and you know, you're thrilled, and then we'll just ride for a while, because he knew he wanted to run the reel out on that shot so credits could come over it. So he sat the camera there, and he ran it on them. And I don't know whether it was one, two, or three takes, but they were pretty uh, um, tired of doing it. And they sat down, and they did their laugh. And then after a while, I think they're thinking, is he going to say cut? <laughs> <laughs> is he ever going to end it? Are we going to go all the way to Bakersfield? What the hell is going on? So. We get credit for suggesting that they're looking into the future and seeing perhaps the downside, perhaps the upside, but certainly not all black and white and gray, you know, and all that crap. They're just exhausted. They're tired. They have nothing left to act. Those are God's little gifts. Okay. Right back here. Uh, hi, I'm one of the foreigners who's seen the movie for the first time. Oh, yeah? Um, what I wanted to know, like Ben, I was bothered through the whole movie by Mrs. Robinson's motivation to not have to see her daughter. What was up with that? Can you enlighten me? Um, <laughs> Why didn't you? Because I suspect that if you sort of think about the 60s, particularly on the verge of the sexual revolution, um, a woman who has probably not had her first affair with a kid or somebody from around town and thinks of herself as, as a sort of low life and has contaminated this kid with it, uh, I think she wants to keep her daughter away from him. 
She does not want her contamination to move on to her child. But I'm, I don't know. I don't, I don't totally know what her feelings are. Nor, nor do I have to, for me. I don't, so you know, I just, you know, I have my own opinion. Your opinion. And yours may be much better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> because, but I think you're, I mean, you're right. It's a perfectly good question. Um, it's, it's a sort of a mystery, maybe. But, you know, too often in, in, in Hollywood films, I think they answer all those questions. Uh, and they don't leave room for the mysteries. And... Um, they, you know, they always suggest that there is a reason for everything, that everyone does everything for a reason. And as you and I know, nobody does anything for a reason. We do everything for thousands of reasons, that half of which we're not aware of. Um, I'm not sure. I, I can always cop out and say because it's in her nature, which, which is an answer I like. That's a good enough answer. <laughs> Over here. Yeah. Uh, I have a question about Catch-22. That was one of my favorite works of yours. Um, because the cast uh, was mostly from, seemed like from the improvisational circles, comedy circles, did that uh, make it a looser atmosphere to the script or the set? Uh, well, no. Um, actually, other than Mike and myself and and Peter Bonners and and Arkin. I don't think anyone else was from the improvisational theater. Uh, Arkin was always in our heads because he just seemed to be to be Osarian. Uh, we never considered another actor. Um, Did that help any? I think it helped. the The improvisational background helps because it gives, among other things, a lot of tricks to writers, to directors and actors. If they've shared the experience of improvisational theater, which, as you probably know, isn't just getting up and, and being glib, but involves an enormous number of techniques and theater games, as they're sometimes called, uh, if two people have come from that background, they can use them. There's a kind of shorthand about how to get at certain things. Nichols does it all the time when he directs actors. That is, he gives, as any of you who have been involved in improvisational theater knows, uh, there's almost always a task involved in any scene. The other people don't have to know it, but you have to know that your task is to get that bottle and get out that door. And your task, and this person doesn't know it, is to kill him if he goes near the door or goes near your bottle. Um, that, those kinds of tricks, uh, playing on an entire part with a stomachache, which is never expressed, just used, are things you use from acting class and from improvisational theater that, that people like Arkin and Nichols and, and others were, are used to. But, I would think the only improvising that was done in uh, Catch-22 was in the last sequence when we got stuck in the long hospital sequence. And for about, Mike shut down the shoot for about three days and the guys uh, improvised in the set and it came to nothing. 
because the improvisation just didn't sound like anything else in the film, as improvisations usually don't. Uh, you know, the trick is to get it to match the style of the dialogue and the behavior of the rest of the movie, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult trick to, uh, to negotiate. Uh, my feeling is I can always tell any sequence that's improvised in any film. And it jolts me momentarily out of the film. Um, uh, Warren and I, uh, Beatty and I improvise a scene in, in, uh, in Heaven Can Wait. And it always jolts. I always, am, I'm so aware that we're improvising because it's, the rhythm is different than the rest of the film that it, it bothers me, even though it's a successful scene. Um, in Altman's films, which uses improvised and written stuff, he's very tricky about it. He, he's very canny about it, and he understands that. And he, he usually changes the pattern of his shooting to match an improvised sequence, so that they seem to go together in a way that the different pattern goes with pre-scripted sequences. And there's a trick in it, which I won't give away. And I may be wrong about it. Um, Cassavetes films do the same things. I mean, sometimes, of course, the improvising is agonizing in its length and sort of weirdness. But when it works, it's spectacular. We couldn't do it on Catch-22. It was too complicated and too, uh, too specific. Is, it, is this more difficult for you to write? If Catch-22 went to die for above very complex, intricate structures, structures Whereas a film like The Owl and the Pussycat, you said you basically started writing and improvised it. Is it harder for you to write one way versus the other? No, it's the same tactical problem, regardless of what the, the tone is. You've got to know how to get to there from here. And it's hard to do. Mm -hmm. OK, some more. Over here. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, uh, what's the advice that you give regarding how to deal with people in the business who may want to compromise, compromise your vision on a particular screenplay? Like who? <laughs> I mean, which people are we talking, are we talking about? Like studio people or, or just a director or anyone that, that wants to take a cut of what you have just written? Well, you know, when you, if you write film, if you write screenplays, you've got to know already that you are being paid, one hopes, to do a certain amount of compromising because the screenplay is not the film. You're writing something that, uh, and, and also my, my feeling is, even though I bitterly resent it sometimes, it's their money. It's their money, they get their say. And ultimately, at the end of the day, their say counts more than mine does. I may be pretty unhappy about it afterwards, I may have a, an argument with somebody, but it is their money. So then if you don't like that, you've got to go somewhere else. You've got to find a new career or you've got to find a new patron. Um, because ultimately, the way you see the film you've written on the page isn't going to be the film that emerges, uh, no matter what the circumstances are. I, I mean, when, it, when it works, I now believe that this is exactly the way I saw it. But I don't think that's true. Um, I and and in some you know in in some cases the comp in some cases the compromises help. 
In some cases, they're right. Uh, you can only believe uh, you're right as long as your money holds out, which is a cynical way of looking at it, but basically true. Um, the director is going to change it, the actor is going to change it, the studio is going to change it, the editor is going to change it, the camera is going to make it look differently than you ever thought it would. Um, the advertising isn't going to be to your liking. Your name will be too small. Uh, um, somebody else will get your credit. Uh, and the audience will misunderstand what they're looking at. So, you know, changes happen all the way down the line. I don't know practically what one can say about dealing with the compromises, except you've got to know that they're there and you're going to have to make them. You've, you've said in past interviews that you can do more in, in film as opposed to television, that there's more compromise in television. You hear a lot today, a lot of people think that there's actually better quality writing on television. Um, yeah, I don't think that's true. Um, although I've seen a lot of made-for-television movies, not on networks, but on, on the cable stations that are just as good, uh, and in many cases much better than, than uh, our huge important features. But then I don't much like our huge important features, so you know I don't know I don't really know what it's about. Um, the formula the formulas are working harder than ever. The studios are are making things to formula more so than they in, in my memory ever did in any decade. Uh, the gags, the continual gags in Hollywood about how you describe a film as you know so and so meets so and so. Um, you know, uh, the third man meets King Kong. Uh, um, that's particularly old-fashioned. Today it would have to be uh, uh, Dumb and Dumber meets... Why Dumb and Dumber would meet anybody, I don't know. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying. It's, it is the language now, and it's unashamed. Uh, every studio executive, I think, believes that he or she has a bit of an artist in them. Total hogwash. There is no artist in any of them. They wouldn't be studio executives if they were. Um, so you have to, talking about compromise, you have to know that when you go in to talk to a guy or, or woman in a studio, you're going to hear at least one thing that will make you crazy. And so you have to smile. Uh, I see what you're saying. That's very interesting. Yes. We'll turn the hero into a woman and we'll have it take place in a volcano. <laughs> Let me think about it. We have time for a few more questions, fortunately. Over here. Yes, um, I know Dustin wasn't that surfboard, he didn't have that surfboard quality that you were looking for. And I guess the irony is that he is from LA, right? So he's been born and bred yeah. in Los Angeles. And named Dustin for Dustin Farnham, right. uh, the great cowboy actor who's, who, whom his mother liked. Uh, I'm curious, I think you brought so much of that New York, quote unquote, whatever it is, the New York angst to the park. I was wondering, how much did Mike and yourself, I mean, really just bring that out in, in terms of the script? Did you envision that uh, in, in Dustin, or was it kind of, I mean, because it's hard to see Robert Redford, you know, evoking that type of angst for, you know, mm -hmm. uh, any kind of angst. <laughs> Um, I know exactly what you mean, and I don't know what the answer is. I, that is to say, there was there was a quite a long rehearsal period, at least three weeks, which is a long time for a movie. Uh, 
during which I'm sure they worked stuff out that I don't remember anymore. But Dustin, I think, got it right away. Um, he knew exactly where, where it was going, what the point of the character was. Uh, and he is an extraordinary mimic, um, as a lot of good actors are, so that he can... I, I, as I said before, I think he picked up a lot of stuff from Nichols, uh, who, who does have kind of angst-related uh, behavior traits. Um, no, I can't imagine. I don't know. Well, you know, it would be great to make a movie and make four s simultaneous casts and to have, you know, all sorts of different people doing the scenes. It would be wonderful to see what would happen. But uh, we're awful. Um, in this case, I don't know what Dustin was drawing from, except, you know, his, he got a new haircut and... Uh, he was wearing clothes, kind of clothes he'd never worn before. He looked really good. He'd worked out. He was in great shape. And if you lie out in a pool on one of those floats for any length of time, you become that thing. <laughs> That's my theory, anyway. Uh, we also had a, this dopey notion that we were going to start in the plane, and as the plane flew over Los Angeles, we were going to look down and see first one swimming pool as it crossed over from Colorado, and then two, and then a hundred, and then six hundred swimming pools, until finally it was nothing but a giant swimming pool. I don't know what the hell we were talking about. <laughs> Maybe we were drunk or stoned or something. I mean, this idea that, the, that we would envision this country of swimming pools that would all come together in one huge thing. <laughs> okay, all the way in the back, up there, yeah. Uh, was your role as the clerk written into the script, or did you just decide at the last minute to assume that role, and how did you feel about it, and how did you um, I, uh, it was written into the script, and um, I played it because, as I remember, because I used to do it in the readings which is how I got almost all the roles and <laughs> I, I just, I did the reading either so beautifully or so loud that uh, no other voice would dare uh, shut mine out. So then, um, so then I played it. Uh, how did I feel about it? Oh, I love doing it. I had a great time. Okay. <laughs> uh, we'll take one more question then we have to break. So, right down here. Oh, what a conundrum. Well, <laughs> television is the fast and easy answer, and I think it's true. Um, generations, what, three, four generations of television we've had now? Uh, and in commercial television, which is really to blame, where you have to crank up the action for be, before every commercial. And there used to be one, two, three, four commercial block breaks per half hour. Um, 
the rule, the law, was you had to get the audience to jolt, to push the button on the test meters uh, just before you went to commercial to keep them sitting there, to make them incapable mentally of changing the channel. I think it affected films. Um, the amazing thing is to me that there's anywhere to go anymore. I mean, I, mean, I went to see The Rock the other day, uh, which has, you know, I mean, I've seen worse. Uh, it's got some things actually to recommend it. But it's an amazing example of pumping up the volume. It starts with a chase that should have killed everyone in San Francisco. <laughs> and proceeds there, like the guy in the studio says, to go straight up. It never stops. And so that while you're thinking, God, this is amazing, you're also thinking, what kind of job is this to sit in a room and think, now we have to do something that is even bigger to keep the attention span, uh, to keep the audience awake and, and thinking that they're seeing something important. And they do, they just keep doing it. I'm not recommending it, but it is the formula for, uh, for films. Obviously it doesn't work for every film and there are real movies that have, that have both the sublime as well as the ridiculous, but they're further and farther between, I think. On that note, we're going to have to break. We'll be back in 15 minutes for To Die For. Thank you for coming. Made by a few minutes. Um, we are pleased to show a studio print of To Die For. And please welcome back to introduce To Die For, Buck Henry. Thank you. Um, what can I tell you? Uh, you're going to see To Die For. I hope you like it. Um, it's uh, it's uh, adapted from a uh, a book, uh, a successful uh, novel, which in turn was extrapolated from uh, a, an actual murder case that took place in in uh, New England some years ago. Um, although we make we're pretty far removed from the actual facts of that case. Uh, I'm sorry I won't be able to answer questions about it afterwards because I'm sure there will be a few about uh, various things that took place both uh, um, in the shooting and in the editing and uh, uh, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> I hope you like it. It's got some great things in it and it's got a particularly great performance by Nicole Kidman. Well, yes? Um, a, uh, an executive uh, at uh, Columbia who was working with the producer of the film, um, Laura Ziskin, uh, said to me one day, would you like to work with Gus Van Zandt? I said, yeah, Gus and I had worked on a project for about 10 minutes some years before. Uh, we were going to do a version of the candy-coated, tangerine-colored thing stuff, you know, the Tom Wolfe book about Ken Kesey's uh, amazing um, drug-ridden uh, bus ride. And um, after one meeting at a studio about it, I was convinced that it would be a really bad idea to try and make this film. Uh, not only because it dealt with so many taboo subjects, but I always feel that it's bad enough to have one original writer on your case. In this case, there'd be two, Kesey and Tom Wolfe, 
who would resent whatever I might try to do to their story, so I said, no, no, this is too much trouble. Um, um, so that, but I did want to work with Gus. I loved uh, Drugstore Cowboy. I thought it was a great film, and, and uh, I thought you know, it would be interesting to work with him. So, and I also had read the book and liked it a lot. Uh, uh, Joyce Maynard being a particularly adept writer of uh, social peculiarities and, and uh, particularly having to do with uh, crime and, and uh, weirdness, or C&W, as we call it. Uh, that's all I can think of. I hope you like it. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.